Hello, and welcome to episode 5 of Bearskins, Bayonets and Bravery, Notes from the Guards Museum. My name is Andrew Wallace and I am the director of the museum. Last week, I took you on the second part of the tour of the galleries here at the museum and shared a little of what life was like in the early years following the establishment of the three older regiments. This week, I'm once again going to delve into the museum's library and pluck a book off the shelves to share with you. Before I get started on that, I'd like to tell you that a message has flooded in from my listener. No, it's not Mrs Trellis from North Wales. Oh, and by the way, I'll offer a prize to the first person who emails me to say where that reference comes from. It's from a gentleman called Steve State, formerly Grenadier Guards, who is currently languishing in Oman, where he has been teaching the Royal Omani Police Force about the intricacies of being a drum major. Steve served for just under 100 years and may well be the most photographed guardsman in the world. He was actually drum major when Julius Caesar was in command and Pontius Pilate was the brigade major in London. On a recent episode of the Antiques Roadshow, they got very excited when a member of the public produced an old postcard that didn't have Steve State on it. Steve is stuck in Oman, having completed his training tour, but unable to fly home due to the pandemic. Poor man is stuck out there in air-conditioned, five-star luxury, all expenses paid. I'm thinking of asking the nation to stand on their doorsteps one evening and clap for him. But maybe not. Why do I mention this? Well, talk of Oman reminded me of a redoubtable guards officer from my past. When I worked in investment banking, I worked in a British merchant bank called Morgan Grenfell, where I worked for a wonderful Irishman called Patrick McAfee. He was a main board director, and I carried bags for him for a number of years. Patrick spent quite a lot of time in Oman, advising His Majesty Sultan Qaboos bin Said on matters of finance. Whilst out there, he met and became friends with several members of the Brit expat community, one of which was Colonel Malcolm Havergal, Coldstream Guards, who served on attachment to the Sultan's forces. When Malcolm returned to London, he was appointed Chief of the Headquarters Staff based in Horse Guards in Whitehall. Malcolm can only be described as a Prussian in his appearance. He was tall, ramrod straight and immaculately turned out, whether in uniform or in plain cloth. A note for the uninitiated, guards don't have civvies, they have plain cloth. Patrick would invite Malcolm to enjoy a spot of luncheon a couple of times a year. These gatherings were not for the faint-hearted, as they were both Olympic drinkers in those far-off days. These luncheons were held in the bank's main board dining rooms, which were situated in the main building in Great Winchester Street. To give you some idea of Colonel Havergal's attention to detail, on one of these occasions it was raining, and I don't mean a shower. It was rain of biblical proportions. Patrick and I were working in the investment division in Finsbury Circus, and we had to make the 500 metre dash back to the main building for lunch. We arrived in the banking hall with water running off every flat surface. We were both drenched. Patrick told the receptionist we were expecting Colonel Havergal and that we were going to go up to the dining room to dry off. The receptionist said, Colonel Havergal is already here and is in boardroom B. Patrick and I dragged ourselves upstairs and walked in to find Malcolm stood by the fireplace depressingly immaculate in morning jacket, sponge bag trousers with razor-sharp creases. 
boiled shirt, stiff collar, a grey spotted silk tie, perfectly tied, all set off with a pearl tie pin. He was the epitome of sartorial elegance. Us, less so. With a liberal sprinkling of expletives, Patrick inquired how, in God's name, Malcolm had managed to present himself in such good order while the rest of the world were thinking of building an ark. Malcolm responded, Dear boy, not liking the look of the weather, I sent my Batman here earlier today with a complete change of clothes. Only a guardsman would think of that. The nub of this story is not actually about Malcolm, or Patrick, or me. It's about Malcolm's clerk in horse guards. I wish I could remember the man's name, but sadly I can't. This character was ultra-efficient, but was possessed of a very sarcastic sense of humour and a deadpan delivery. Please bear in mind, these events took place in the halcyon days of long lunches, and the Sergeant Clark was well used to covering for his boss, who was frequently missing in action in the afternoon, which he was happy to do, but only up to a point. If one called in the afternoon, conversations would go like this. Good afternoon. May I speak to the Chief of Staff? Good afternoon, sir. Sadly, no. Is he in today? Oh, yes, sir. He was in earlier, but he's away on a course now. Will he be back today? Unlikely, sir. They only teed off at 1pm, so they'll just be starting the back nine about now. On another occasion. Good afternoon. Please may I speak to the Chief of Staff? Good afternoon, sir. Sadly, no. Oh, yes, sir. He was in earlier, but now he's working on an important case. Will he be back today? Unlikely, sir. By my watch, it's twenty to four, and I'm guessing there are at least still two bottles left in that case. On another occasion, he was obviously at odds with his boss, because the Sergeant Clark cut straight to the chase. Good afternoon. Please may I speak to the Chief of Staff? No, sir. He's in Yorkshire, murdering grouse. And my guess is that the good colonel never knew what was being said about him. Priceless stuff. And so to business. This week I want to share with you some extracts from an autobiography about a grenadier officer who rose to become a general. He met King George IV as a child, met the Duke of Wellington, was present at Wellington's funeral, commanded in the Crimea, witnessed the charge of the Light Brigade, was a personal friend of Florence Nightingale, was awarded two knighthoods and who served for an impressive 48 years with the regiment he loved, the Grenadier Guards. He was the son of a grenadier who was on Wellington's staff in the Peninsula Campaign and who was used to scout forward of the main army, reconnoitering the terrain, army deployments and general information gathering. We have his father's sketchbook on display in the museum. He used it to sketch the defences of the walled town of San Sebastian in the northern Basque Territory in 1813. If you compare his sketches of San Sebastian to more formally executed paintings of the time, it shows him to have been a very capable artist. The first tale I want to share concerns Higginson's attendance at a meeting with Wellington. Now, as many of you know, the current Major General commanding the Household Division frequents the same office as was used by the Duke of Wellington and sits at Wellington's old desk. The office is located immediately above the archway which joins Whitehall to Horse Guards Parade, and it is from that office that members of the royal family who are not actually involved in Trooping the Colour watch the ceremony. 
The tale concerns the actions of a rather unbending commanding officer in the Grenadiers. For the purposes of this retelling, we should give the commanding officer the name of Smith. Higginson writes, One other meeting with Wellington comes to mind. Very shortly before his death, I was present at an official interview in Horse Guards, when his grace gave his decision on the subject closely affecting the position of a young ensign, of whose conduct his commanding officer had taken such grave notice that he had called upon him to retire from the regiment. On his refusal to do so, his alleged offences became the subject of a court of inquiry, whereof the finding implied that a reprimand would suffice to mark the offence. Unfortunately, Colonel Smith, though a high-minded gentleman, was unsympathetic, obstinate, and would not yield. Eventually, the case was submitted to the Duke as Colonel-in-Chief of the regiment, and after a few days, those mostly concerned in the case were summoned to his room at Horse Guards. The party consisted of General Sir George Brown, Adjutant General of the Forces, the young officer who was the centre of the inquiry, and his commanding officer, while I accompanied my own commanding officer, Colonel Julius Angustine. The Duke received us standing at his window looking out over Horse Guards Parade, and I shall not easily forget his appearance. He had evidently been at a wedding, for a favour was still attached to the lapel of his blue coat, and the edge of the garter ribbon peeped from the border of his buff waistcoat, relieving the broad white neckcloth which he always wore. The Adjutant General briefly recapitulated the facts of which His Grace had already been made aware and awaited his decision. The Duke said that, although the circumstances were discreditable, he did not consider that the harsh treatment proposed by the Lieutenant Colonel was called for. The youth and inexperience of the accused affording good reason for doubt as to any dishonourable intention on his part. The Duke therefore desired that the incident might be considered closed. We gave a sigh of relief, at least I know I did, when the unfortunate youngster expressed his hope that he might return to his duty with no stain upon his honour? Certainly, said the Duke, no stain, no stain, and turned to look out the window. Colonel Smith sprang forward and in a loud voice exclaimed, I would have your grace to understand that my opinion about this officer is registered before God and that no man upon earth can make me alter it. The Duke affected complete deafness upon which Colonel Smith came closer and repeated the words in stentorian tones. My poor commanding officer, clasping his hands, whispered to me, This is just too dreadful. General Brown, one of the rough old peninsula school, seized Colonel Smith's coattails, exclaiming, Don't be a damn fool, and endeavoured to drag him from the room. Turning round, Colonel Smith desired him to mind his own business and an altercation ensued. The Duke retired to his window, apparently unconscious of the disturbance. The rest of us closed around the Adjutant General and Colonel Smith, who kept up their altercation as far as the door, and even down the stairs. Proceeding to the regimental orderly room, which then was at Horse Guards, Colonel Smith issued an order summoning every officer of the regiment in London to meet with him the following morning within the barracks. When we were assembled, he walked up into the middle of the room in silence, greeting no one. Then, turning, said in a grave tone, 
I have been ordered by his grace, the colonel of the regiment, to restore this young man to the position as an officer which he held before this recent court of inquiry. I decline to do so, and I resign command of the regiment. Resuming his hat, he strode out of the room, and we never saw him again. Higginson goes on to talk about Wellington's funeral, which must have been an unforgettable sight. He writes, I recall all this with special interest, as I do not remember ever having seen the Duke afterwards. Within a very few weeks there lay upon a camp bed in the dimly lighted chamber at Walmer Castle, the hero of a hundred fights, whose spirit had returned to him who gave it. In November I attended the Duke's funeral, having been sent up from Windsor in charge of the flank companies from my battalion to form a guard of honour at the western door of St Paul's Cathedral. Parading at a very early hour, we marched along the Strand and Fleet Street to St Paul's some time in advance of the great procession, and I had ample opportunity to observe the evidence of national grief in the grave attitude of the crowd in the streets. We were formed up across the entire western entrance. As the head of the procession appeared at the top of Ludgate Hill, the pallbearers, each of whom bore an historic name, and had come as a representative of the great nations on the continent with whom we were in alliance, joined with the small knot of survivors of the Duke's old companions in arms, and took their place on the platform erected above the upper flight of steps, and stood with bared heads as the funeral car drew up. Then an incident occurred which very nearly marred the imposing effect of the ceremony. The huge funeral car was covered with draperies which concealed even the wheels. The twelve horses which drew it had, I believe, been placed at the disposal of the authorities by a well-known firm of brewers as being better adapted to draw this enormous 19-ton weight than artillery teams, however well-trained. They were all covered with trappings of black velvet and nodding plumes, and their own attendants, suitably dressed, prevented the occurrence from any serious accident. But the ascent of the paved roadway, leading in a curve to the entrance of the cathedral, had been specially covered with sand, and proved too much for the horses. On arriving at the point where it was intended that the coffin should be transferred from the catafalque to a little tramway laid especially from the steps right along the nave to the centre of the dome, the car halted too soon, a few feet short of the point at which where the transfer could alone be made. In vain the horses strained to move the car deeply embedded in the sand and the pause which followed left the distinguished veterans who stood there bareheaded on the platform exposed to the cold November wind. I overheard Prince Gorshakov say, This cold is insupportable. Suddenly, from under the drapery of the car, some half-dozen figures emerged clad in the roughest possible clothes, each carrying a crowbar or other implement. They had walked the whole way bent double under the car, concealed from view, evidently intended to be emergency men, and their grim appearance would have attracted more notice had they not at once proceeded to lever the wheels to the required spot. All this involved considerable delay, during which some onlookers managed to slip into the cathedral unobserved, behind the flanks of our guard of honour, which was standing rigidly at the present arms. The dean and his two verges tried in vain to stop them, 
so I made my way through the ranks till I reached the spot where dear old Dean Millman was vainly gesticulating against the crowd. He received my offer of assistance with much relief and gave me full powers to stop further intrusions. To place two files of stalwart grenadiers at each door with orders to allow no one to pass soon sufficed to restore a sufficient space for the final funeral procession along the nave. As I considered the dean owed me a small debt of gratitude, I did not scruple to avail myself of the opportunity to join the train of mourners that stood under the dome while the coffin was lowered through the opening prepared for it to its final resting place in the crypt. But although sixty-two years have elapsed since then, I can never think without emotion of the moment when the plume of that well-known hat, fluttering in the draught that rose from the vault beneath, sank beneath the pavement, while the organ pealed out the last chords of the dead march from Saul. Higginson held many posts within the Grenadiers, both at home and abroad. As adjutant of the 3rd Battalion, he served throughout the Crimean War. He participated in the battles of Alma, Balaclava and Inkerman, where he had his horse shot out from under him. He was promoted to the rank of Brevet Major in the Army on the 12th of December 1854. He was also present at the siege and fall of Sevastopol, following which he served as Brigade Major of his regiment until the end of the war. Whilst in the Crimea, he witnessed the charge of the Light Brigade, which, depending on your point of view, was either a glorious cavalry endeavour or a senseless waste of life. Higginson writes, Meanwhile, the Brigade of Guards had been formed up in the plain awaiting orders to retake the captured redoubts which the Russians had occupied in force. The Highland Brigade was now completed by the arrival of the 42nd and 79th Regiments from Inkerman and had been reinforced by the 4th Division, so the port was secure from attack for the present. Through a gap in the ridge on which the redoubt stood, I saw, though at a great distance, the Light Cavalry Brigade advancing on the plain beyond the ridge. I saw the 17th Lancers lower their lances, break into a canter, pass out of sight on their deadly mission. We heard the heavy firing of the Russian guns. We could even hear from time to time the shouts of those engaged behind the hill. But we had no knowledge of how things were going, and we received no orders. Presently, however, George Paget, first son of the Marquis of Anglesey, rode up to me as I was standing at some distance in front of our line of columns, and I shall never forget the expression of his countenance as he said, God alone knows what has happened to my poor regiment. His description of the charge was too vague and short to convey more than that the light cavalry had ceased to exist. As the evening was now drawing on, and the men had not even had breakfast, it will be idle to say that we looked forward with ardour to the task before us. We were ready for it, However, when another aide-de-camp to Lord Raglan galloped up and ordered us to return to our camp at Inkerman without delay, no further movement of attack being intended that evening, we reached our camp after dark, weary and dispirited, for a grave disaster had befallen us. He adds a footnote to the chapter. I have related briefly in the text the facts and incidents of the 25th of October 1854, which fell under my personal notice but so much has been said and written about the cavalry fight at Balaclava that I do not hesitate to record my opinion which the lapse of years has matured. 
It confirms the belief which many of us had formed at the beginning of the campaign that the government had committed a grave error of judgment in appointing Lord Lucan and Lord Cardigan to commands which, in order to secure efficiency, needed confidential relations and thoroughly good understanding between the two chiefs. It was well known to every member of the government that the two men were not on friendly terms. In proof of this, I have only to refer my readers to the letters published in the Times newspaper in April 1855 by each of the officers in question, wherein neither attempts to conceal the total absence of any desire or intention to throw aside the barrier of personal antipathy, the indulgence in which might imperil not only the success of the operations, but also the lives of those entrusted to their care. It is perfectly true that the order which Lord Lucan received at the hands of Captain Nolan was so worded as to place him in a very cruel dilemma. For on him, as general officer in command of the cavalry, rested primarily the full responsibility for the due interpretation of that order, and had it been possible for a cordial exchange of opinions between him and his subordinate, Lord Cardigan, at this critical moment, it is just possible that the catastrophe which ensued might have been averted. It is conceded now by all that it was madness to interpret the order literally. But had Lord Lucan refused to obey it, we should never have heard of that chivalrous display of courage, of the frightful carnage which ensued, and of the self-devotion of the victims. It is one of those questions which, like many others connected to that winter in the Crimea, can never be settled without throwing blame on someone. Regarded in its worst light, it was an error of judgment. In the autumn of 1856, I met Sir George Brown at Gordon Castle, where Lord Cardigan had also been recently a visitor, and, in describing the charge, had placed the brilliant performance of the Light Brigade in a light more favourable to their prowess than to the actual result of the reckless adventure. Upon the Duke of Richmond repeating this to Sir George Brown, the old general turned to me and said, in an almost solemn language, I ask you whether there is one single day during the whole war when the weight of disaster fell more heavily upon us than on that day at Balaclava. Many years afterwards, a short time before his death in 1888, I was sitting with Lord Lucan in his home in London. I asked him whether he could throw any light upon the doubtful interpretation of the orders he received at the hands of Captain Nolan and how it affected the events which followed. He then related in forcible but not unkindly words his own version of the whole events of that memorable day in Balaclava, including the charge of the heavy brigade under General Scarlet. I was greatly impressed by Lord Lucan's dignified acceptance of a responsibility from which a man of less firmness of character would have shrunk, and by his desire to render justice to all who had yielded to it such loyal obedience. I left him thoroughly convinced that, besides the great qualities expected from every cavalry leader, he possessed that high sense of responsibility which calls for the respect and trustful recognition from those under his command. With regard to Lord Cardigan, I shall always consider that his brilliant reputation as a chivalrous cavalry leader was marred by lack of that moral courage which enables a commander to grasp every favourable opportunity, however great the risk he may run. In conclusion, however, 
I revert to my original opinion that the blame lay primarily with the government in selecting two men known to be estranged to each other in private life for commands in which efficiency could only be secured through the perfect cordiality and cooperation between them. The flags or colours of a regiment are the physical embodiment of its soul. The colours are treated with the utmost respect for three reasons. One, they are presented to the regiment by the sovereign. Two, they are consecrated and set apart in a religious ceremony at the point at which they are presented. Thirdly, they carry on them the names of all the places in the world where the regiment has distinguished itself in battle and been awarded battle honours. For those reasons, the colours are always protected, especially so in battle. For a regiment to lose its colours in battle is regarded as the ultimate shame, and Higginson recounts a moment when the Grenadiers managed to avoid losing their colours to the Russians at the Sandbag Battery. This was just one action within the overall Battle of Inkerman. Brigadier Adams was in command of the Sandbag Battery, which was an empty gun emplacement in the path of the advancing Russians. He had a force of some 2,000, facing 7,000 Russians, and his troops had almost no ammunition left and were exhausted. He describes the action thus. Again hurled back from their little sandbag battery or redoubt, our grenadiers formed a compact body around the colours, while I limped off a short distance to the left, hoping to see through the mist and fog the approach of reinforcements, but I found the gap increasing, and... As it was afterwards proved, the remainder of our comrades with the Scots Fusiliers were encountering another heavy column of the enemy threatening the left of our position. It was at this moment that I saw a figure in naval uniform, rendered more distinctively by the tall glazed hat he wore, coming towards me. The new arrival proved to be Captain Peel of HMS Diamond, one of the most adventurous and daring of the naval brigade which had been landed to take part in the siege operations. On my expressing astonishment at seeing him amongst us at that moment, he simply remarked, Oh, there was nothing going on in my little battery on the hill behind, and as I heard you fellows had plenty to do, I thought I would come up and have a look at you. I replied with some gravity of manner that we were in a tight place awaiting supply of ammunition and long-expected support. While this conversation was going on, I felt a bullet pass from behind through my bearskin cap, causing me for the moment to stumble forward. I exclaimed, This is rather hard lines. Here are our own fellows mistaking us for the enemy and firing upon us instead of coming to our relief. He turned his field glasses to the direction I pointed and said in a subdued voice, No, by heavens, it's the enemy getting around our rear. I moved at once to our sturdy little group rallied around the colours and explained to Charles Lindsay, the only officer at that moment I could find, our new danger, and then began our ever-to-be-remembered retreat. Clustered around the colours with scarcely a round of ammunition left, the men pressed slowly backwards, keeping up their full front towards the enemy, their bayonets ready at the charge. As a comrade fell, wounded or dead, his fellow took his place, and maintained the compactness of the gradually diminishing group that held on with unflinching stubbornness in protecting the flags. More than once from the lips of this devoted band of non-commissioned officers and rank and file came the shout, Hold up the colours! Fearing, no doubt, that in the mist and the smoke 
they might lose sight or touch of those honoured emblems which they were determined to preserve or in their defence to die. The two young officers, Vershoyal and Turner, raised them well above their heads, half unfurled, and in this order we moved slowly back, exposed to fire, fortunately desultory and ill-aimed, from our front, rear and left flank. Happily the ground on our right was so precipitous as to deter the enemy from attempting to outflank us on that side. As from time to time some Russian soldiers, more adventurous than their fellows, sprang forward towards our compact group, two or three grenadiers would dash out with bayonets and compel a speedy retreat. Nevertheless, our position was critical. By the time, however, we traversed half the distance to the breastworks of the second division, the pressure on our rear and left was relaxed, the Russian column having been sternly repulsed by the force occupying the ridge. Free at length to rejoin our main body, we hastened our pace and soon saw the Duke of Cambridge and the rest of our brigade on the crest of the ridge. I shall never forget the cheer with which the returning colours were welcomed by all ranks, His Royal Highness being almost moved to tears, for, as they all said, we had given you up for lost. Many a time have my thoughts flown back over the waste of years to this stirring episode. Many a time I have told the story among friends. Never until now have I ventured to commit it to writing, for, indeed, my pen would have failed at any time in an attempt to impress the reader with the varying emotions which filled my mind while the safety of our colours was in jeopardy. The mere possibility of the colours of the first regiment of our sovereign's guards being laid as a trophy at the feet of the Tsar had to be faced, and I believe the prayer went up from us all that such dishonour might be averted at all costs. Certainly the grave faces and resolute attitude of our grenadiers made me realise there was no exaggeration in the language used by Sir William Napier in his well-known description of the behaviour of the 1,500 British soldiers, all whom remained to stand triumphant on the fatal hill at Albuera. Time has not served to dim my respect and admiration for the bravery and devotion of this little group of grenadiers in the defence of their colours on that day in Inkerman. The tattered fragments of these colours have found their final resting place on the wall of the guard's chapel. I feel confident that none of my readers is so cynical as to smile if I admit that I never enter that treasure house of memorials, so dear to every member of the Brigade of Guards, and feel able to gaze without emotion on the colours which served as a rallying point on the dark uplands of Inkerman. Later in the book, Higginson describes how he and a dozen of his fellow officers celebrated a meagre Christmas dinner in his tent. They had strapped eight bayonets by the blades to the central pole of the tent and placed candles in the bayonet sockets which would have fitted over the rifle barrels. This afforded some light by which they ate their meal. There's a rather good sketch of this moment, and this is mentioned by Higginson. He writes, In a large volume of sketches made by Mr. William Simpson, an artist of considerable repute, there is a drawing entitled A Christmas Dinner. The tent in that drawing was mine. I had decorated it as best I could, so that I and my brother officers could celebrate Christmas with as much cheeriness as we might muster. 
we had secured from a French sutler at Camiesh some fearful effervescing stuff, which they called champagne, some scraggy fowls and a ham, and the evening was passed with due conviviality and interchange of those expressions of goodwill and friendship which only the strange tenor of our daily life could draw forth. I have often in subsequent years seen in London shop windows prints of this drawing, at the foot of which is given the names of all those present at our Christmas dinner in 1854. The fact that I am the sole survivor of that gallant company has come home to me, bringing a train of thought whereon to indulge a few reflections which may be accepted from one whose race is nearly run, by those who among my younger readers may be beginning a hopeful career in the regiment, whose honour those good gentlemen did their utmost to preserve. The Crimean campaign was the first overseas action reported on in real time, thanks to the invention of the telegraph. Until then, battles to the British public have been remote, heroic affairs, with the reports being read several months after the actions took place. But the real horror of what battle was actually like came when the young painter Lady Elizabeth Butler displayed her work, The Roll Call, at the Royal Academy's annual exhibition in 1874, almost 20 years after the Crimean campaign. She interviewed numerous men who were present at the battle, and she was roundly praised for the accuracy of the minute details which she included in this massive canvas. It shows the Grenadier Guards lining up for a roll call after one of the actions. This is not a classic portrayal of smart soldiers rejoicing in a moment of victory. This shows guardsmen in tattered greatcoats and bearskin caps, utterly exhausted, roughly bandaged, leaning on their rifles for support, some collapsed in the snow, possibly dead, and all with what they now call the thousand-yard stare of men who have lived through battle that none of them expected to survive. This painting so overturned society's view on what battle was like that police had to be deployed to keep the public away from the canvas, such was their interest at seeing the truth about war. Our man tells of how life in the Crimea brought home how much guardsmen came to rely on the basics of life. To his father, he writes, You asked me to recommend what I think best for the men in case of your having funds placed at your disposal for their benefit. Well, I consider that ere long our fellows will be amply provided with clothing, so that is out of the question. Tobacco we can all get for them, but the thing they most like, and which they can never get too much of, is tea. The rations issued to them, in spite of repeated representations, are only coffee in the green berry, and that gives them a world of trouble in preparation, and in the drinking of it, an inevitable stomachache. So stick to good old sound black tea, brown sugar, oh, and rice. These are always acceptable, and are not plentiful here at all. Another thing, the sun sets at 4pm and rises at 7.30. Does that not suggest candles? Candles and some simple cheap lanterns will be very useful. If again a greater flight is taken, and people wish to benefit the soldiers at large, let them tackle the subject of boots and shoes and send a cargo of boots, large ones, impervious to water, as far above the ankle. This, however, could only be done by communicating with the authorities, and there you have the contractor's interest and influence in opposition.
half our sickness has been brought on by wet feet, and the present form of boot is by no means adapted for wading in mud. I, for one, am all for returning to the old-fashioned gaiters buttoned above the knee. Higginson's book concludes at the outbreak of World War I, and he reflects on how his regiment continues to uphold the traditions of excellence and indomitability. He writes, This my final chapter. I end abruptly, nor is the cause far to seek, for, as I sat retracing in the quiet hours of home seclusion the final stages of my active life, the sudden call to arms on that fateful 4th of August 1914, diverted all thoughts of the past into an ever-increasing interest in the present and the future. Week succeeds week, and every dispatch from the seat of war, whether from the thousand-mile front behind which we and our allies the French stand so firm, or the less clearly defined limits on the eastern frontier so long threatened by the Russian armies, tells us of new weapons, new agents of destruction, aeroplanes, guns of unprecedented size, and even poisonous gases, causing one to feel that any criticism based on history or scientific experience would be valueless. The same regiments which fought with Marlborough at Ramillies, Aldenard, and Malplaquet are at this moment almost on the same ground, earning still nobler fame by their indomitable endurance. But Vauban and Cohorn would gaze with amazement on the modern system of approach by trench and the defenceless condition of the cities which, fortified by their skill, were deemed impregnable. He would be a bold man indeed who could lay down fixed rules, even of an elementary nature, for the training of either officers or men of modern armies, more especially our own. The advance of science is so rapid in the discovery of new elements of destruction that we seek the laboratory to check the fierce charge of the bayonet. And finally, this man who commanded soldiers for nearly 50 years, frequently in battle, gives us his opinion on leadership. He writes, The true meaning of leadership can only be acquired in the battery, the squadron, or the company. It is true that there are born leaders, but, as regards the majority of our young officers, the growth of confidence in their powers to direct and control those under them must be gradual, drawn from those sources which pride of race, habits of study, and hope of distinction provide. Respected, perhaps beloved in times of peace, in the hour of danger and in the rage of battle, the company officer has but to use the words, follow me, and the honour of his regiment is assured. We read of the German troops hurled in masses to the assault by orders mingled with threats from their commanders who are in the rear. It is needless to say that in an army such as ours, the private soldier would resent and the officer would soon scorn such an interpretation of the word leadership. In every history of our great campaigns from Marlborough's days to the present, the deeds of regimental officers, from colonel to subaltern, have attracted the pride and sympathy of the readers of those annals more readily than those mere chronicles of a successful campaign. I may be pardoned for dwelling with force on this subject, for scarce a year has passed since it was my privilege to watch from day to day 
here in my own neighbourhood the training of two battalions of my own regiment. As I noted the strengthening of the tie which united the younger officers with the men in the ranks, whom they were soon to be called upon to lead. I felt how comparatively unimportant were the great changes in armament or tactical manoeuvres, so long as that mutual confidence exists between him who leads and him who follows, which has enabled them to face the rude ordeal which they have so recently undergone. So, there you have it for this week. I hope you enjoyed hearing the words of a man who was the very epitome of a good officer. Hard-working, intelligent, brave, self-effacing, and always a champion for the men he commanded. A proud grenadier who devoted his working life to serving his sovereign, his country, and his regiment. Next week, we will resume the virtual tour of the museum galleries, and I will share with you some tales about Wellington, the Peninsula Campaign, and the incredible victory at Waterloo that laid the foundations for the Europe we see today. I have been Andrew Wallace. This has been Episode 5 of Bearskins, Bayonets and Bravery, Notes from the Gars Museum. Do let me know what you think of the podcast by emailing me at guardsmuseum at aol.com. If you would like to support our work in the museum, you can go directly to our donations page at www.justgiving.com forward slash campaign forward slash guards museum support thank you for listening goodbye and god bless now turn to your right and salute dismiss up down and get away